From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We use wood so that we give the various microorganisms sort of a place to colonize and live from batch to batch. And over time, those colonies and those different species that have taken hold will change, they'll drift. And so you'll develop kind of unique character to each tank. That's really interesting. This week on the show, we dive headfirst into a giant oak barrel full of aging beer. Okay, well, not literally. Producer Toby Foster pays a visit to the wood shop. That's Upland Brewing Company's sour beer facility. Now's your chance to learn what's special about this beer and why they needed to construct a separate building to craft it. Mysteries revealed just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. First up, we have reports from our partners at Harvest Public Media. Though we've had a bit of rain in recent days here in southern Indiana, much of the Midwest has been experiencing abnormally dry conditions, putting sprinklers and hoses in overdrive as people try to keep their lawns and gardens green. But as Harvest Public Media's Excaret Nunez reports, some cities are putting conservation measures into place to keep their water supplies from drying up. Dry weather, high temperatures, and a lack of rainfall across parts of Nebraska have caused a spike in water demand from city residents. Steve Owen is the superintendent of water production for the city of Lincoln, Nebraska. He says the city has recently asked residents to cut back on watering their lawns. When there's less water in the river, there's less water in the aquifer for us to draw from. It's really that that got us to the point of getting to our voluntary water conservation efforts. If weather conditions don't improve, Owen says the city will have to put mandatory water restrictions in place. Storm Lake, Iowa and Wentzville, Missouri have also declared voluntary water measures. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Excaret Nunez. Regenerative agriculture is a movement that takes a conservation approach to farming, with policies that are often influenced by indigenous knowledge. Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports on how indigenous farmers in the Midwest are sharing these practices. The Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska received funding from the USDA to start a new project called the Center for Excellence in Regenerative Native Agriculture, CERNA for short. The program will welcome a cohort of farmers from around the region, both native and non-native. The tribe is hoping to influence farmers who live nearby, partly to prevent the nitrate pollution of their waters, says the tribe's chairman, Timothy Rod. If we find ways through CERNA to change the practices and the mindsets of these producers and re-educate those folks, we can have better water. The USDA says that projects like these are forwarding climate goals of the Biden-Harris administration and upholding the department's commitment to tribes. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Our next story comes from Earth Eats producer Toby Foster. pounds of black raspberries left. I mean, the main thing where you're just going to shove them in and get aggressive. And how careful no, we to look for? The more you open them up, the more easily the yeast and bacteria get in there and break the sugars down. and helps release some tannin, which is good.
If you live in Bloomington, have visited Bloomington, or are an avid viewer of Parks and Recreation, you're probably familiar with Upland Brewery. It began here in 1998 and has since expanded to multiple locations in Indiana and is widely distributed across the region. In 2006, they began brewing sour beers and have become particularly well known for this style, which is aged in large oak barrels called fooders. You may have seen them in the window of the Upland Wood Shop, across the parking lot from their original location, which is completely devoted to brewing sour beers. The main difference between these and their quote-unquote normal beers is that the barrels allow wild yeast and bacteria to affect the taste of the beer, and in fact the beer will change in character multiple times during the aging process. The brewers will then take a blend of different beers at different stages and then allow them to finish the aging process in smaller barrels, usually combined with some sort of fruit or other flavoring. I got to visit the wood shop last February and chat with Eli Trinkle, Upland Sour Brewer, as well as Matt Wisely, the head brewer, and Adam Covey, Upland's quality manager. So I'm Matt Wisely, I'm the head brewer, so I do a lot of the organization of the production from all of our three breweries. Here at the Woodshop, I coordinate with Eli with Sour Beers and create schedule for our main brewery on the west side of town where we brew all the staples, Dragonfly, CV, Wheat, Campside, all the regular beers, and then also the uh, Fountain Square location. We have a pilot brewery up in Indianapolis, and so we do new beers, experimental beers, and I create recipes for that as well. I'm Eli Trinkle, uh, the sour brewer, so I do most things over here, at least labor-wise. Production work over at the other facility as well. A little bit of, little bit of everything, so. And my name's Adam Covey, I'm the quality manager. I have a lab at the profile location where I spend most of my time, but I also help out with the sour program. And generally, my role is sort of uh, quality control and assurance to make sure that our products are going out the door stable and clean and uh, the way we want them to be, then sort of deal with problems as they arise. So we're here at the wood shop, which is specifically for the sour beers, correct? Do you want to just give me a little bit about what a sour beer is, what makes it different? And um... yeah, I mean, really the biggest difference is we use bacteria in them, so and that's what creates the souring part of the beer. <laughs> in most beer that's just made with yeast, Saccharomyces, so and you want to avoid all the all bacteria, so we have the two different facilities to keep them separate so we can use bacteria over here without cross-contaminating into the other beers so that's why we have the two different facilities so for regular beer quote-unquote regular beer that people drink in much higher quantities than they drink sour beer we're trying to isolate things down to one particular microorganism these are particular yeast strains that have been selected over generations of people <clears throat> brewing specific types of beer that they wanted to taste a specific type of way and they would repitch yeast from one batch to the next and if the beer was good they would repitch it if it wasn't good they would dump it and so you get this evolution happening over really hundreds of years and you have all these distinct yeast strains that make distinct styles of beer when Matt talks about pitching yeast, he is talking about adding yeast to start the process of fermentation that produces beer. Yeast can be reused or repitched, which is how beer is traditionally made. The brewers do pitch a traditional yeast, but the sour beer they produce also relies on wild yeast, which Matt will get to in a minute. When we're brewing beer over on the west side, 
in our main production facility, what we're trying to do is we're trying to only introduce that one specific species that is specific to the style of beer that we're trying to brew. So if we're going to brew our champagne velvet, we're, we're pitching a, a lager yeast that has a very clean characteristic. If we're brewing our wheat ale, we're pitching an ale yeast that has a lot of flavors of its own. But we're trying to keep every other organism out of there except, except for that one that we introduced. So we're boiling every beer that we make, we're boiling it to pasteurize it. And then on the west side, we're adding the one particular type of yeast and there's nothing else and we try to keep it clean all the way through and we almost always do. Over here at the wood shop, we kind of let nature take its course. So it's much less predictable. And so basically anything that could be found in nature that wants to ferment beer, we let it do it. We do pitch a specific blend of different types of microorganisms. So there's, there is some of that brewer's yeast that has been kind of cultivated in the same way over generations, but there's also wild yeast, specifically Britannomyces, and a couple different types of bacteria, Lactobacillus and Pediococcus. And then there's also things that live in the wood of the vessels here that we use for fermentation. And that ecosystem has kind of evolved over time. We, we, we don't thoroughly clean those tanks in the way that we clean our stainless steel tanks on the other side of town because we want those things to be still living in the wood. It may sound strange to say that they don't thoroughly clean their tanks, but don't worry, they're following all the appropriate food safety guidelines in the production of their beer. The acidity in fermented products takes care of any harmful pathogens, and in fact, you can't produce wild fermented products in a perfectly sterile environment. The main difference between our what we call our core beer and our sour beer is that mix of, of yeast and bacteria. It's much more of a wild process over here at the woodshop. And I guess does somebody want to kind of just describe what we're looking at for people that are listening? Here at the woodshop, we have some very large uh, wooden tanks up front here. We've got three right here in the window, and these tanks are called fooders, and these are usually found in the wine industry. They're uh, white oak, just like you would find most barrels to be made out of, but they're basically a very large barrel. If you've driven by the wood shop, you've probably seen these large wooden fooders through the window. They sort of look like something you might see in a medieval castle. Like Matt was saying, we use wood for this program so that we give the various microorganisms sort of a place to colonize and uh, live from batch to batch. And over time, those, those colonies and, and those different species that have taken hold will change, they'll drift. And so you'll, you'll develop kind of unique character to each tank that, that's really interesting. And beyond these fooders here in the front, we've also got several rows of oak barrels. Most of them came from wineries. We do have some bourbon barrels in the, in the fleet as well. And those are generally in this program used for a little longer term aging, or sometimes we fruit directly into them. And the advantage to using a smaller barrel is that you get a little bit more surface area to the, to the liquid, and so that some of those processes can actually happen a little quicker. Each of these tanks can develop independently, even if we put the exact same product or the exact same beer in them. As we sample them over time, they will, they will all pick up unique characteristics that we can use when we blend later on into the finished product. I think we do need to acknowledge, we need to give Caleb Staten 
some credit for this. He's uh, one of our former head brewers who started experimenting with these sour beers back in 2006. So before any of us were here, I think he traded some cases of beer uh, with Oliver for a few of their wine barrels, and he started with, I think, just two barrels making these sour beers that no one in this area had even considered producing in any way, shape, or form. So it was because he started doing that and developing this very small program that then slowly, slowly, slowly grew until the point where we realized we needed this facility that we had the demand to, to create this. And so now, because he got, he got going so early on this project, we have sour beer all over the country. We're known throughout the world for the beers that are produced in this facility. Well, I guess maybe let's go ahead and try this. Yeah, so this is basis what we call basis it's our take on like a traditional lambic style sour blonde yeah sour blonde we don't call it lambic it's kind of like champagne from champagne of france you can't really produce champagne outside of the region of that region of france and you can't produce lambic outside of that region in belgium so we don't we don't like to call it that so this is pretty much the i mean almost the only beer we make in the sour program these days. Um, we do occasionally some like collaborations and stuff like that and experiment, and, but this is what makes up the majority of them. Uh, then we take this beer and we will add it to different fruits and that's where we get a lot of the different style or the different flavor profiles that we have. So and this beer is uh, 24, a little over 24 months old. So. so Toby, why don't you tell us what that tastes like to you? Because a lot of times we'll tell people, oh, this is like, you know, this, uh, this characteristic or that characteristic, and then they'll start tasting it because we said it. So like with, right. with from a blank, you know, a blank canvas, what do, you, what do you taste in that? Well, you did say Belgian style. It does taste kind of like a Belgian style beer to me, but maybe slightly like vinegary almost. Or like, like it has that, that thing that like a white wine makes you, makes you feel. I don't, Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. What do you call that that feeling? Yeah, no, I mean, you call it whatever it is that you taste, right? So, I mean, everybody's palate is different, and they're going to they're gonna pick up different sorts of flavors, and it's going to, the same flavor is going to be different subjectively to, to different people. So, you know, whatever you say, it's, it's, it's not wrong. There's not a thing that you should say, but I do like that you said white wine, because that, to me, that's, that's a lot of what I get out of this, this beer, and the oak, I think, imparts its own flavor to it over time. A little bit of vinegar is acetic acid, which is something that develops over long periods of time and that takes the ingress of oxygen very, very slowly through the wood for those bacteria that produce acetic acid to actually do that. So we do like a little bit of a touch of that, that vinegariness, but not too much. It's a delicate balance there. You said it's the aging that makes that kind of come out? The vinegar? Yeah. It's the, yeah, I mean, it's the presence of uh, type of bacteria in oxygen and then I mean even like Britannomyces will create acetic acid in the presence of oxygen as well so um, so we, it's a big thing we try to limit oxygen I mean that's in beer all around but especially yeah just in the aging process with the wood it does let a little bit in it's kind of thinking of it as it as breathing so but it just helps kind of the maturation of the beer so when we brew the beer we will send it up here and we pitch a a collection of, yeah, like Matt was saying, yeast, bacteria, and right away the yeast is going to ferment the majority of the sugars out. So takes it and within two weeks your, your alcohol is produced. Then over time, the other things will start to take all the, the bacteria and the wild yeast, Britannomyces, will start to consume those residual sugars or dextrins and starches and things like that and start lowering the pH and making it actually sour. It's, it's pretty wild how it will change quite a bit over time, like it can go 
you can go from pretty bad or pretty pretty you're like yeah. to, to <laughs> yeah, almost like so there's this aspect of funk as far as sour beers goes i don't go i don't think uh our beers are very funky per se but you know when you talk about funk you're talking about flavors that are pretty much acquired an acquired taste so cheese would be like the prime example of something that's very very funky i mean we don't want a cheesy flavor in any of our beers but you you will taste sour beers that do have these flavors that they describe as like barnyard or even horse blanket things like that that are just not associated with something that you would normally want to drink so sometimes these beers will go through sort of a phase like that and then kind of turn around but for the most part the basis that we create which is the the foundational beer for all of the sour beers that we create it's a pretty clean sour beer it's got a little bit of that funk but to me like you said a lot of that white wine character and there's some other things going on but it's not something that i think would be too challenging for somebody to drink it's not necessarily an acquired taste for me the the acidity is strong which is something that some people absolutely love and it's just not for other people but it is very wine like but i don't think that these are the beers that we produce here for the most part you would call funky and so you said it kind of changes it can get to that point and then maybe change into something different yeah it can go from being fairly drinkable to all of a sudden they're like what happened here like we call it sick like the beer got sick uh, then other things will come in over time and start to clean those compounds that are creating that flavor profile and and just completely change it back to something that we like usually between like one year to two years is the optimal for all this so but anything before one year is not really at, the, at its peak, in my opinion, especially. But then once you get start getting over 24 months, oxygen can start becoming more of an issue and you start picking up more of that acetic acid and it can become more and more sour. That's where blending really comes into where we can actually take something we really like a lot versus there could be something that's like, ah, there's a little something weird in this one, but it's got a really nice character to it so we can add a little bit of that into it and it gives it quite a bit of depth. So if something's a little bit weird, it's just interesting, yeah, right? Exactly. It's another layer to the flavor, but if it's overpowering, then it can be an, an off flavor. So um, blending is more of a part of what Eli does here than we, we do very little blending in any other aspect of the other beers that we produce. The beer starts in the large fooders, where it stays for usually a year or two. After the yeast has done most of its work, that's when it's transferred into the smaller barrels, usually with fruit or some other flavoring, to age a bit longer. One thing that was really interesting to me is that each fooder will potentially impart its own flavor onto whatever beer is put into it. There's a like, living culture in the wood. It was like in 2008 we got one fooder and really liked what was coming out of it and then we, in 2015 we acquired more fooders and we were worried about getting flavors that we didn't like or we we're worried about getting that same flavor so we actually brewed each batch into that original fooder we have and then transfer that into all the other tanks to kind of inoculate the wood and build that culture and that that we we like in there so yeah at this point we we certainly have a house culture that is distinct to this program even though we started with commercial cultures that anyone has has access to several years ago we had it sequenced by uh, a professor here at IU and and he was able to actually isolate like 53 unique strains. I'm gonna drop Matt Bachman's name. Matt Bachman has actually been a guest on Earth Eats in the past. You can find a link to the episode and to his work at eartheats.org. Yeah so you know that's that's pretty cool that you could take this recipe for this basis and you could go anywhere in the world and try to brew it and not end up with the exact same product. 
that's how we're, we're able to differentiate this program and, and create unique experiences that, that nobody else really can. So. And this is a very unique facility in the country. There are somewhere around 7,000 breweries in the country, but there's only literally a handful of places this size doing, doing this sort of thing. That was going to be my next question. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess do you want to move on to talking about the blending process? So as he was saying, Basis is the base beer for virtually all the beers that are produced out of here, and we're adding fruit, we're adding spices, blending different other things into the process to create very, very different beers from that one original beer that we call Basis. So what he's pouring now looks like, what, is, what do you got, cherry? Okay. There's a couple beers that you use as the base in well, addition to the Basis, or is that not so much the case anymore? Before COVID happened, we were making a lot more beer out of this place. And uh, sour beer was becoming more and more popular. And then COVID changed everything. And it also, other things came along during COVID. People got into seltzers and ready to drink cocktails. And just drinking tastes just drastically changed in a big way for the whole industry. And so sour beers are, they've always been kind of a niche thing. But now they are more so than when we first got going in this facility. So we were producing a lot of different variety out of here. There were, I don't know, how many, how many beers did we produce in a year in, in like 2018? For example? 30, 40, yeah. something. It was quite a bit. I mean, yeah, we were making like three base beers. So we did have like a Flanders style red, uh, then a Ode Brune style, uh, like a sour brown ale. We just haven't been producing those. A lot of people really like the fruited stuff. Um, so that's what we focus on is the fruited sours. Yeah, this is a style that some people really, 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 really love. But it is, you know, it's, it's not as accessible to everybody because of the, the intense tartness. A lot of wine drinkers like to drink sour beer, but it is more expensive because holding on to beer for one to two years before we even add fruit to it and then packaging it in the way that we do, it's all very expensive. So we have to charge a higher price point. So it's not the beer that somebody's going to go to on a typical Friday night and fill their fridge with it. It's for special occasions. It's for sharing. I would say more like treat it more like wine. Like you're not going to sit and grab a bottle and just down it by yourself. Usually, it's they come. We sell them in 750 mil, same size as a wine bottle, and it's nice to get one and open it with four or five friends and just talk about it and enjoy it with a meal or something like that. Just yeah, I mean, treat it more like wine. So I mean, really, after the brewing process, it is much more wine-like here with the blending and the aging process and the aging in wood and everything like that. So that kind of brings us to the topic of fruit and sourcing of fruit. You want to talk about these cherries and just how we how we source fruit in general? We try to source locally. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to source pineapple locally. I mean, there's certain things that we, yeah, we, we go pretty far away, but like the cherries we get from Michigan every year. Um, we get black raspberries from here, just down the road. Blackberries from up just right around Indianapolis. Pawpaws, we have a guy that people bring him foraged ones, and then he also goes to some of the farmers that have pawpaw trees and we'll, we'll gather them and process them for us, pulp them for us, just to remove the seeds. Yeah, if you don't know what a pawpaw is, which I bet people that listen to this show probably know what a pawpaw is, but if you don't, it's this uh, fruit that grows around most of the eastern, midwestern United States and down south, and it's, uh, it's a very fragile fruit. It goes bad very quickly, so you don't see it in the grocery stores, but it looks kind of like a, a green potato, and it tastes kind of like a, man, a, a mango mixed with a banana. And so it's a very pulpy. It's got a lot of big seeds inside, so it's hard to work with. But the pawpaw that we get is processed into, into a puree, and we freeze it until we're, we're ready to use it. 
And so you're freezing essentially like a puree that you've already strained out. That's everything. like pawpaw, yes. But like the cherries, they do, they come pitted. So we get those from a pretty large grower up in Michigan and they, they've got a pitting machine. But then on the other side, we get peaches and we actually pit those. So we'll get multiple skids of peaches in and usually it's, we get like a little party going, hopefully a party going. And they just sit around in a circle and pit peaches all day, usually several for several days. For usually it's, it takes about a week and depending on how many people we have there, but um, yeah, you're just sitting around listening to music and talking. It's actually, I enjoy it. So it's one of my favorite things that we do on the first two days, the last three days are kind of brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's another thing about our beers in particular, I think that sets our sour program apart is we use a lot of fruit. Yeah. Like the, the amount of fruit that we use versus the amount of beer that goes into it, that fruit ratio is, is very, very high. Yeah, it's usually up around the three pounds, three pounds per gallon. And that we, does we, we, have a, we, have, we have a blend of, or a, a, a range of different ones, but yeah, like pawpaw and cherry and raspberry, they're up there pretty high, so. So it tastes kind of like a cider in a way yeah. as well, but it's, I guess it's maybe the difference that you're starting with this beer base or is, um, what, what makes this different than a cider, I guess? Well, cider is made with apples, so when this is made with malt um, is the main difference. But like going back to Matt, ask you what flavors you were picking up in our that base beer, I get cider. Like it's super appley pear to me, and it, it comes with a little bit of that acetic in there. To be a beer, you need at least 51% of the alcohol to have came from grain. The starches that we're getting out of out of the grain is is converted into simple sugars and consumed by the yeast into ethanol so to still be a beer it has to has to have the majority of the alcohol derived from that grain where a cider is technically a wine where the the sugars that the yeast is consuming to produce that alcohol is derived from the fruit itself sometimes we get kind of close with our high fruit range our fruit rates but these are still very much beers and then i guess also you mentioned the hard seltzers becoming a thing over the last couple years and you guys do have a are you still making the hard seltzers that have the... So this is, uh, you've hit on a, a sore spot. And no, I'm, I'm gonna, sorry. We can dive right into it. <laughs> we don't because, have to. Uh, we, we, uh, the company decided that it was worth it to do that. And uh, we wanted to do it in a way that was, you know, that had some integrity. That wasn't just fermenting sugar water and putting a flavoring in there. So that's one of the things that's important to us is that we're using natural ingredients as much as we possibly can. And, and we're, we're, we're trying to be legit, right? So we developed a seltzer that also included a blend of 10% of basis that we that we brew here, and we also use whole fruit for that. But thankfully, not many people wanted to drink it, so we don't have to make it anymore. <laughs> we're, we're not seltzer fans within the brewery, so. Fair we, enough. We well, I, en I enjoyed the seltzer that you all made. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, do you want to, should we try one more, yeah. or? So many of the beers that we produce here are, are just a single fruit with bases, which are all very, very good, and they taste very much like that fresh fruit. But we also play with all sorts of other ingredients and sort of draw on inspiration from other beer styles too. So this beer, Golden Brew, was a collaboration with the brewery out of California. It was fermented with their house yeast, and also it was fermented a fooder as well, right? Yeah. So we, we, we blended in some of our bases, and then we dry hopped it. So you're going to get a sort of different type of hop aroma and flavor than you would get out of, say, an IPA, because whatever liquid you put the hops into, it's going to extract different compounds from those hops in different ways based on the acidity you're going to get quite a different flavor so this is uh, one of my favorites of what we what we have on right now 
Yeah, it's really good. It is the other things that we tasted were so are there hops involved in the basis? Very, yeah, very little. We use uh, okay. aged hops, so I mean they are technically aged now uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, but we put very little in there. And hops are anti antimicrobial, so we don't want to overdo it. I mean, a little bit isn't in there is good. To help keep other things that we really don't want growing, especially when before fermentation takes off and the yeast has a chance to produce the alcohol um, and lower the pH. But very little generally we, but this is all dry hop. So this is post fermentation, post aging. This is, we dry hopped it when the beer was ready to be packaged just like a week before we packaged it, so. Yeah, dry hopping just means adding hops either during or after the fermentation as opposed to say in the boil or something like that. Okay, that makes sense. That, that's what I was getting at, yeah. Yeah, it's really good, refreshing, light, but yeah, it has that, a little bit of that kind of like IPA flavor that you get from the hops. Yeah, it's really good. As you can probably hear, I struggle to find the words on the spot to describe exactly what I'm tasting. And I've also revealed how little I knew about the beer brewing process prior to visiting the wood shop. I did a little more research later and realized that, again, it comes down to the blending of different batches and that this is a blend of Upland's signature basis beer with another barrel-aged sour ale from a brewery in Southern California. Then it's the hops that are added at the end that give it the floral notes. It's a flavor that is familiar in a comforting way, but also complex and original in a way that makes it feel new and exciting. Now that I think I'm finally starting to understand, I wanted to get a little bit more detail about the blending process. And we'll hear more about that after we take a quick break. You're listening to a story from Earth Eats producer Toby Foster. He's talking with Adam Covey, Matt Wisely, and Eli Trinkle, about sour beer production at the wood shop. That's Upland Brewing Company's facility designed specifically for crafting this type of beer. Stay tuned to hear Toby's first-hand account of adding berries to a brew and to learn more about the sour beer making process. Stay with us. Earth Eats, this is Kate Young. Let's get back to Toby Foster's visit to Upland Brewing Company's Woodshop and his interview with Adam Covey, Matt Wisely, and Eli Trinkle. So, like, if we know we're going to produce a fruited beer, which is which is what we're doing here a lot, right? We're gonna we're gonna know sort of what the fruits bring into the table, and then we look through our inventory of beer that's that's in process, either in the fooders or in the barrels go through and do a tasting, see what we like about each of those, even though they may be six different versions of basis, if you will. They could be three months old, they could be six months old, they could be two years old. Typically, we're going to go through and, and see which ones we like, see which ones have those interesting notes that might be too off-putting by themselves, like Matt was saying earlier. And so a given fruited beer may get 70% or so of, of something that's that's hovering around a year, year and a half old that, that's really in its sweet spot. And then we'll, we'll look for smaller amounts of those other versions of the basis to add that, those layers of complexity in. So that might be another 20% of something that's really young and has a lot of tropical peachiness going on. And then we may go pull 5% from some barrels that's been in there for two and a half years and, and starting to get some of that acetic character or some of the more funky, cheesy farm-like 
flavor characteristics. And at that small quantity, those are going to come off really uh, just interesting. And then once we find that sort of blend, we'll put that in the tank on top of the whole fruit that we've frozen or processed in whichever, whichever way we need to for that particular fruit. And that beer blend will actually sort of wake back up now that it's been reintroduced to sugars that the fruit is bringing and it'll go through an additional fermentation. Then another change essentially happens at that point. So sometimes that base blend, you know, some of those characteristics maybe disappear or new ones come up even at that point. But it's kind of a really exciting way of producing beer, a little more artistic where you're, you're sort of taking different colors of a palette and, and, and trying to find something that works for the given fruit. And because we're using all the whole fruit that, that we talked about, you know, that's coming in seasonally. So any given year, that's going to change as well. So some years, the water concentrations may be higher. Some years, you know, the, the actual just fruitiness, the, the richness of whatever particular ingredient we're adding is, is going to be more intense. It really is like wine where we have vintages effectively of these different releases. The 2022 cherry is going to taste different from the 2023 and that's because of the, the nature of, of the, the base beer and the fruit that's coming in being different each time. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've seen that you'll, you'll do like a, an event for like the release of like a new, yeah. what do you say? batch? I don't know what you, what you call it. Sure, yeah. New, yeah, new batch, new vintage. So then, yeah, we do, then we do one beer specifically where we showcase that our base beer is a sour reserve. So we, we usually try to take at least a one, two, and three year and do a blend. Um, and it just, instead of, I don't want to say fruit masks it, but a lot of times it really does just kind of hide up, hide the, the flavor of the beer. So we want to occasionally show that off. So we pick the best of the best and, and do a blend of that and package it as sour, sour reserve. Usually it's very small, a small quantity, so you got to jump on it to get it. So, and we don't put any, none of that's in draft or anything like that. That's all just bottle. Most of the sour beer that we produce now goes through our own retail locations. Back in the day when we had a very small facility and we only were able to produce, you know, maybe 300 barrels a year at the absolute most, then we, we had to have a lottery for people to sign up ahead of time, reserve themselves a bottle and come, you know, get it. That's kind of the situation we're getting back into now. So we're, we're producing less, but we're putting it out through channels that we know people are gonna appreciate it with. So um, when there's a release, pretty much the only place to get it is to come to one of our locations. Wanna put some fruit in a barrel? Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Before we get to putting fruit in the barrel, Eli gives me a tour of the facility. The production actually starts across the parking lot in the area where Upland initially started brewing their regular beer in 1998. So yeah, this is our brew house. Um, this is where we make all the work for the sour beer. This was our original or original brew house from until in what 2012 we moved over all production to uh, the west side of town. Um, it kind of sat somewhat stagnant. I mean, like. Sours were kind of moving. I mean, like I said, Caleb started in 2006, and so it's ramping up slowly, but I mean, to make 200 barrels of beer, it's not a whole lot of brewing. It's a lot of aging, like going back to that wine where it's a little bit, little bit of the brewing, just a lot of aging. But then in 2015, we were looking for a, a, a spot to, to build a new facility to, to make sours, and we kind of looked around in different locations, and then we just settled. We're like, why don't we just keep our original brew house and we had a building across the street at the time that we were storing stuff and so we tore that down and built the wood shop and then just went through the expansion of 
mainly more fooders, so we went from one fooder to 11 fooders of various sizes, 60 barrels, 37 barrels, 100 barrels, and 90 barrel fooders. The brewing process is very similar to making a clean beer. We do a little bit different things. So like we use unmalted wheat here and that's it kind of leaves behind some starches and dextrins that wouldn't be there if we used malted wheat. And so that kind of just leaves food for the bacteria and the yeast to consume later on during the maturation period. Malted wheat has undergone a process called kilning where it is slowly cured with warm air. Unmalted wheat is the raw version and is treated a little differently in the brewing process, making for a different flavor and mouthfeel. So we boil, boil the wheat, uh, then add the rest of the barley in to actually go through the conversion process of all the starch, where it converts the starches into sugars. We transfer that all over into the, the brew kettle here and boil that for two hours versus the normal like one hour that kind of just helps concentrate the sugars a little more. There used to be a silos outside that we had all the grain and we could come in here. Now everything is in bags. There's our hops aging up there in those bags. Those are actually locally grown hops. Mill goes into the grist hopper, uh, then go to mash in. It comes up through into the mash tun. We do the, the two-step mashing process. Traditionally, we, it's Lambic Brewers made a turbid mash, which we do whenever we do we've done a, like a cool ship experiment which is how they like the traditional lambic brewers do it you leave it you leave the wort sit open overnight and so that's when like the bacteria and yeast actually falls into it and then we transfer that into barrels to let that ferment out it's been a somewhat inconsistent but it has it has some produced some some drinkable beer but it's definitely we, we pitch a, a controlled culture just to make sure we get a nice healthy fermentation that is one of the reasons why we don't get as funky and as barnyard or I mean a lot of them go through there's such little cells in there whenever you do a spontaneous fermentation that it, the yeast kind of struggle and it creates a lot of a lot of those like off flavors like rubber rubber balloons or things like that that people have come to like um, but I'm sure nobody liked them originally yeah I don't know if rubber balloons it, seems it smells exactly ideal. like a bag of rubber balloons <laughs> to me so from here, we can go into any one of the fooders that are in, inside here, or we actually have underground piping that goes up under the parking lot oh. to the other facility. And so we can transfer anything from back and forth from here up to there. We used to package everything in here. That was quite, quite an adventure. That's actually how I started in the Sours was helping coming over here and package the Sours. So I started in 2003, early 2013, just, yeah, like Matt was saying, me and him, both started at Butler Winery just down the road, which was a homebrew shop, and that's where why we got started into it. We were both just hardcore homebrewing. And then I really got interested in the wine side, so I was going out in the out in the vineyard and doing a lot more out there and helping out bottle and harvesting stuff like that. And then Matt had moved over here or got a job here. And then like about a year later, there was an opening, and he talked me into coming over here, and it's been great. Like who I work with and the people are wonderful. So um, what's well, changed in the last few years for sure, but um, it's still pretty great. Nice. Um, cool. So yeah, then it goes into one of these or one of the ones across the parking lot. Yeah. And then it's just going to hang out there for as so, much as two years. Yeah. I mean, or three or four. So, I mean, but the three or four is getting just a little on the older side, but it does, 
it changes quite a bit, so it really does add quite a bit of complexity. We just wouldn't want to take a three or four year old and package it by itself. It would be probably pretty harsh, pretty acidic, definitely some acetic, a lot of acetobacter in there just because oxygen, it can't help but get in there over that long a period. Mm -hmm. um, and it's everywhere, acetobacter's everywhere all over us, so that's the acid producing bacteria. As long as you keep oxygen out, it's, it's not really a problem, so. So when you're ready to take it out of one of these, does it always go into a barrel, a smaller barrel? Or? No, so they'll, they'll, we will age in these fooders for the entire time uh, of, uh, for, of the beer maturing. We usually in barrels, it, it, it happens a lot faster because in a fooder, there's a lot less surface area compared to the actual volume that's in there. So in a barrel, there's a lot less volume and you have quite a bit more surface area. So more of that oxygen exchange and uh, gravity works much faster. You only have to move so many inches versus so many feet in a fooder for things to drop out like tannins and all, all kinds of stuff. And so we, we actually do mostly all fooder aging now. We don't actually age in barrels. Uh, when we first started, it was all barrels. Almost everything was going through barrels until we got General Sherman there. That's the first fooder we have. And that's the one that we trained all the other ones up because we just really liked what was coming out of there. Like We, we don't clean these except for by spraying them out with a hose. Like I'll empty it, I'll open it up and take a hose and spray the chunks off and get the yeast and everything out of the bottom versus like stainless we run multiple like run a caustic and acid cycle and a sand cycle on them to make sure there's nothing in there but we don't we we want what is in these in this wood so then it would be go to the blending process and we would do come up with a blend we want and then transfer that into either on fruit, we'd package it if it was like, say, Sour Reserve, or we would transfer it onto fruit and let that ferment out into stainless tanks, which we have, we bought in 2016, 2015, 2016, or we put it in barrels, um, which is what you're gonna help here with a little bit. So we uh, take a whole fruit, like today's black raspberries, uh, grown just south of Bloomington, and we are going to mash them with a broken hammer handle and through a funnel in a barrel. So uh, then we'll transfer the beer on top of that and let that referment for two to three months, depending on the beer. Um, but then we'll transfer it off of that and package it up. So, yeah. Cool. Should, should we go do that? Yeah. Sounds good. That's producer Toby Foster in the wood shop at Upland Brewing Company in Bloomington, Indiana, where they produce their sour beers involving wild fermentation. After a quick break, Toby helps out with adding fruit to one of the batches of beer. Stay with us. This is Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young, and we're back with producer Toby Foster. Toby's talking with Matt Wisely and Eli Trinkle at Upland Brewing Company, and they're about to add some berries to a barrel of beer. It's about 70, 70 pounds of fruit in each one, I then topped them up with beer. And that's what I left this one so we could work on it a little bit. And so we only have about 20 pounds to put in there. It should take five or 10 minutes and we'll just okay. mash them in. So I don't know if you want that thing running. And it really is as simple as it sounds. A funnel, a bucket of fruit, and a broken hammer handle, AKA masher. Matt kind of warned me that this would happen, but Eli really got a lot more talkative once we had a task at hand, which is something I can relate to. And it makes sense why he enjoys working in the brewery so much. So this is how we used to do everything. You can pull that bung out. 
lanyards on them because we've had the, many people drop them in there. We just don't do this much anymore. They're not oh, necessary. Be careful not to do that. Yeah, don't drop them. It'll <laughs> be fine. Just get so yeah, we've got here's 20 pounds of black raspberries left. And I mean, the main thing we're you're just gonna shove them in and looking out for any kind of leaf matter that got in there and so just shove it down in a hole and get aggressive with it. Okay. And how careful you are going to look for? The more you open them up, the more easily the yeast and bacteria get in there and break the sugars down and helps release some tannin, which is good. Um, so think of like a wine, like a, you, got a, you have a rosé versus like a full body dry red. Okay. You want those tannins in there. So. So we got, we got these, this fruit back in the summertime, clearly, from uh, a guy just down south. Actually, he, the same guy that uh, we get our, that sources our pawpaws. And I mean, he grows pawpaws as well, but I can't grow all of them. This is not a, not a cheap fruit. It's very thorny and not fun to harvest. So a lot of people don't actually grow it, but I'm lucky enough to get somebody that does grow it for us. It's one of my favorites for sure. That just reminds me of my childhood, I guess. We always had black raspberry bushes everywhere. Uh-huh. I used to grow up near here. I grew up just in, uh, north of Spencer in Owen County. Okay. So, been living here for 15, 17 years or so. So yeah, I did this. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It took a couple hours today. Okay. Normally, it's a lot of times it's two people. It's not the worst thing, but most of everything we do now is in these larger stainless tanks. So we have peach in here, um, and it's about ready. We'll be processing it at the end of this month. And then uh, just fruited revive, which is our pineapple chamomile. So Indiana grown pineapple. It's for <laughs> After we've mashed all the fruit, we fill the barrel the rest of the way full with the basis beer, which just runs through a hose from the large fooder into the smaller barrel. We can just gravity feed it. We don't have to do, do much work. Okay. So I'll, I'll be coming right back. Okay. So push it in, see, building like a little blanket on the top of the tank, just so as we push out of the tank, it kind of forms a CO2 blanket and it helps keep oxygen out since we will be using this fooder over the next couple months to blend blackberry and guava. And there's another one. <laughs> That's it. See? It's exciting. So now it's, now it's, <laughs> now it's going. Well. Yeah. We'll let this sit for two or three months. Most, in the barrels? In the barrels. It'll, re, it'll go through re-fermentation. I mean, there's so much yeast and bacteria that is on, is on that fruit already. It sat in the freezer for a while, but there's still dormant things, um, which is good. Like, we want that because it kind of helps diversify a little bit of flavor profile, especially like peach, for example, which we have here. We freeze them as we go, for one, because we can't process them all quickly enough to put them all in there and get them on beer. So we freeze them each day 
and then it helps break those cells up. But when we pull them out to thaw them out, you actually start to see like some fermentation taking place because there's the yeast in those skins already. And so that helps restart the fermentation um, and, and ferment all the sugars out on them. There is some of that when we transfer it, like there is still yeast and bacteria going in here, but a lot of it is pretty dormant and it's just been sitting there for two years and um, it's, it's just nice to have yeah, a little bit of wild, wild stuff to play around with. So never know what you're gonna get but we start with the good base so you it's it's pretty pretty consistent so <laughs> i've distracted eli and now we've overflowed the barrel gotcha just a little bit <laughs> i was thinking about them i've been keeping an eye on the uh we have a flow meter now and i've been keeping an eye on it so i don't do this and i haven't <laughs> done it today until we're talking <laughs> So yeah, these will referment. Most likely start overflowing. It used to be very, on the regular, it would just blow off. But that's what these little tubes are for, is to help off gas um, so it doesn't pop the bungs. Oh, okay. It's nice when there's only, uh, this, is, this is a pretty small batch for these days. I mean, this is only four barrels and it was 10 buckets. It's like peach will be it's like 120 buckets. Cleaning buckets is the worst thing ever <laughs> after yeah. putting them in there. So, yeah. But yeah, that's that. Cool. Well, I will not take up any more of your time. I appreciate you showing me around. Let me try some things. And yeah, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. Thanks. Eli Trinkle is the sour brewer at the Upland Wood Shop in Bloomington, Indiana. I also spoke earlier with Matt Wisely, Upland's head brewer, and Adam Covey, Upland's quality manager. For more information and to see some pictures of my visit, go to eartheats.org. Toby Foster is a producer on our show. That's it for Earth Eats this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Adam Covey, Eli Trinkle, Matt Wisely, and everyone at Upland Brewing Company. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Oh.